Okay, is that, is that on? that's on. Well, welcome back. It's January the 24th, and this is lesson 16, subtitled Hope. Um, what I wanted to do, because we've had two weeks off, and sorry about that, the weather just wasn't cooperating last week, is um, kind of lay, if it's okay, a little reminder of the time period that we're sort of uh, talking about and the way things have progressed, and then talk a little bit about... Um, Daniel by means of genre, and then, and then go back and actually read Daniel if that seems okay. If it doesn't, just say, let's do something else. Um, no objections. I'm going to start here. Remember that, the, <laughs> remember that the, the southern tribe of Judah, that's one tribe with some Levites, is sort of made into a vassal and then invaded by the Babylonian Empire under um, the emperor Nebuchadnezzar, three times, 596, 593, and then 586. And in 586, the Jerusalem temple is completely destroyed, burned to the ground, and anybody with uh, even maybe basic literacy is taken to Babylon in exile. So we call it the Babylonian exile. The, the period of that lasts about 46 years. Um, during that time, Nebuchadnezzar, who who definitely is sort of a, 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 an emperor of the ancient Near East, um, has this sort of interesting moment where he decides to become a religious fanatic. And he kind of quasi-abdicates the throne and leaves Babylon to go live in the desert and worship the moon goddess Seen. So, so by the way, when you read that story in Daniel about the king like losing his mind... <laughs> anchored in Nebuchadnezzar going. Now he, he didn't grow talons, friends, and he probably didn't walk around on all fours, um, but that could have been a commentary on his chosen sort of religious life, right? So he, he, he sort of becomes um, really wrapped up in the scene cult. Um, meanwhile, his son, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, is on the throne. He, they, they all have multiple names, and um, in 540 is when Cyrus effectively unifies the Medes and the Persians together. And Cyrus is um, a truly historical figure of note, um, not just for human rights, but, a, but, a, but an intelligent uh, military guy as well. So what Cyrus ends up doing is slowly swallowing the, um, the Neo-Babylonian Empire's land holdings until he gets down to Babylon. Now, this tends to happen, right? And if you know anything about the Muslim conquest, this is what happened to Byzantium, uh, the Byzantine Empire, is they got to Constantinople, and it took like four years to take the city because it was thought to be impregnable. Babylon actually is pretty, pretty similar. Um, <coughs> Babylon uh, had a giant city wall, and the, the river Tigris flowed through the city, which meant they had, well, fresh water all the time. I mean, you can't poison a whole river because the poison would wash downstream. You know, it's just really, really difficult. So remember, in a siege, you're trying to starve people out and you're trying to dehydrate them to death. Um, you could try to dig through the walls, but Babylon actually built their walls uh, twice, and in the middle, they put in uh, rubble, uh, and then they paved on top of that. So uh, you theoretically could have made a 360 on top of the wall riding in a chariot, just to give you an idea how wide the wall is. It would be really difficult to dig through that wall to breach it because people can pour hot things on you 
and shoot you with arrows. And the wall was big enough that there was actually arable land inside. So again, the way you win a siege is that you starve them out, but if they can grow crops inside, that becomes really difficult. So, so the people holed up in Babylon while they lost their empire thought that they were going to keep their city. Th that incident, by the way, is the one that's happening in Daniel chapter 5, where the king is throwing this party and using the sacred vessels. They're sort of drinking to their health, even though they've lost everything else. They're in Babylon, and it's impregnable. Turns out, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> and, and you can read about this on the Cyrus Cylinder, which is in the British Museum now. Um, <coughs> Cyrus tells you, in fact, how he walked into Babylon without a single casualty. He went out of the line of sight and dug a canal, <laughs> uh, a new water path for the Tigris River, and in the middle of the night, one night, he diverted the flow of the Tigris River and walked in under the city and killed everybody, um, with, again, no, no casualties to the Persian side. So it's pretty, pretty stunning. Uh, of course, you've heard stories like that now. People didn't do that then. The engineering and the labor to divert a major river was... Well, major. So, so this is how we did it. Um, and in 538, we talked about this two weeks ago. That's when Ezra um, took some of the exiles back home. Remember, they didn't all want to go because life is better in New York City than it is in... Don't want to pick on somewhere. <laughs> Alvin. So, I mean, they, Jerusalem was Alvin. Yeah. So, <laughs> Jerusalem was Fort Stockton? That's too big. Anyway, um, you get the point. Um, just, just small with few opportunities and not you know, huge skyscrapers. Remember, Babylon has like the hanging gardens. That's a wonder of the world. Jerusalem is like three city blocks. Really, just three city blocks. So, so not everybody wants to go. And, and the author used that word that um, is helpful. That's the word diaspora. And that means essentially that the Jewish community is scattered outside of Judah, Israel. It's just sort of the scattering of Jewish folks throughout the world. Some of that was done to them, and some of it they chose to hold on to, right? I mean, again, people had good jobs in Babylon. Anyone go back to Jerusalem? But Ezra goes back, Nehemiah goes back, 538. They rebuild the temple, they re rebuild the walls, and everything seems relatively fine for a bit. They get along okay with the Persian Empire. Um, <coughs> the Persians um, and Cyrus invented uh, incredibly arcane bureaucratic government. <laughs> so um, that seems natural to us that within a country there would be states, and within states there'd be counties, and then there'd be governors. That's a Persian invention. Those are called satraps or satrapies. The governors are the satraps and, or the satraps. And, and there's, there's just several layers of bureaucratic uh, government to ensure that people are paying the taxes that they're supposed to pay. And, and that was new with Cyrus. Again, everything was going relatively fine until there were these wars started with the Greek city-states. You, you heard about those in world history. Ultimately, Persia won several of the battles, but they lost the wars. And they really lost, not to the Greeks, but in 333, a non-Greek guy you've heard of before called Alexander um, came out of Macedon because he wasn't Greek, he was a Macedonian, 
and he sort of devoured the known world really fast. Um, his father, Philip, had built him a huge war chest, and he had military technology that was kind of unbeatable. Um, you've probably heard of it before, and this, this bears out uh, in Daniel while we talk about this. Um, this is the, the phalanx, um, and you know this worked really well because the soldiers carried a shield that basically covered their entire body, which was impermeable by arrows at the time. Uh, and the shields could be locked together so that they had sort of a moving barrier and they could even be put overhead. Um, usually the front line didn't do that. They marched several rows deep so that the people carrying this heavy shield had people in their back pushing them and they would practice sort of uh, locking their frame so that there were four people pushing and they would literally just mow people over just by walking. And then on top of that, they had about a six-foot iron-tipped spear that they would just stab ruthlessly over their shields. So, so you may say, well, they don't have a lot of visibility, and they don't need to, right? They've got a really long iron spear and an impregnable shield. And it wasn't just that they had that idea. They had that military discipline of marching in ranks and rows. Uh, so, so people just really couldn't stand against them. Um, Ultimately, the Romans ended up with better military technology because they took the shield smaller, it was a little more adaptable, and then they, they had a smaller weapon. The Roman, the Roman sword was actually relatively short, and the Romans, instead of having people push them in the back, they fought in eight-minute increments. So you fought eight minutes, and then you retreated to the back, and you were sort of, that way you only did eight minutes at a fighting at a time, so that they were always fresh people on the front line, and then you were recuperating. Right. Anyway, this is the phalanx, and it's, and it's important because um, those spears look like iron teeth. And Daniel refers to beasts with iron teeth. Right. Um, pretty monstrous to see this wave of people with shields who are going to walk on top of you. <laughs> um, okay, Alexander did really great until he died, which happened real fast in 323. Um, when Alexander died, uh, his empire was sort of split up. His, his son ended up being assassinated and, and wasn't going to be the heir anyway. The generals split it sort of three ways. Um, didn't matter necessarily about their names, but they split the empire into, in, into three, and there was some jockeying. One got Egypt and Palestine. One got Syria. The Syrians ended up taking Palestine and leaving the other people just down in Egypt. Egypt was the prize, right, because that had Alexandria which was sort of the Dubai of the time, the most modern city with the big library. That would have been New York City, but you, you, you catch my drift, right? Um, all that's fine, too. Uh, you know, Jewish people still do their stuff, but Alexander was a zealot for Jewish uh, culture. Uh, this is called Hellenism, which is the idea that Greek language, culture, philosophy are superior to all other things. So Alexander, unlike... Um, unlike the Persians, was not content for Judaism to just sort of be what it was. He thought that everybody in the world deserved to speak Greek and know classics and sort of embrace Greek culture. So he built that stuff, gymnasiums and baths, uh, hippodromes, etc. And Jerusalem received all those things. That was okay enough with Jewish people because they, they were able to keep their customs. The critical thing that happens um, around the year 170, um, the heir apparent to one of these kingdoms left in the remnant of Alexander's death, his name is Antiochus, and he uh, declares himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God made manifest. Uh, this is relatively a new thing for a living king to say that they're a god. Uh, typically in the ancient world, 
kings were declared to be gods after they died. That would be pharaohs in Egypt. Um, Alexander did style himself as a demigod, so if you ever see an Alexandrian coin, he looks like Hercules. He has plated hair and he's wearing a lion uh, wrap around his neck. Um, Chris Leedy actually has one of these Alexandrian coins, again showing the, em the emperor Alexander. Did Alexander... Um, did he actively admit to being a god? Seems like not, although he probably did accept that treatment from people. Um, relatively new innovation, but for Antiochus to claim he's a god may manifest very new. Remember Julius Caesar doesn't even claim that. Um, Julius's um, adopted son Octavian does when he changes his name to Augustus. The August one is like the epiphany. Anyway, Antiochus says he's a god and then decides that um, in, in Palestine they can no longer do Jewish uh, things the way they've been doing. He becomes a really aggressive um, converter toward Greek customs and he sort of enacts the following laws that if a mother circumcises her child, she will wear the dead baby around her neck for eight days before she's burned alive. And then if you have any pieces of the Torah at your home, those will be burned along with you. Now, this is pretty horrific, right, and, and actively done. And then he does something that's really abominable. In fact, um, probably something that's so abominable it causes desolation. So when you read about the abomination that causes desolation, it is probably when Antiochus Epiphanes walks into the Jerusalem temple, precisely into the Holy of Holies, and sacrifices a pig to Zeus which is doubly bad, right, because it's polytheistic and it's an unclean animal and it has then defiled the sanctuary that is the holiest place if you're Jewish. So as a result of these actions, um, some country folk, so not people in Jerusalem, country folk, um, rebel. <laughs> and uh, they're led initially by a guy named Matthias, whose son Judas ends up taking up the cause, and Judas gets the nickname Maccabeus, which means the hammer. And Judas then represents the leader of the, Mac the Maccabean revolt. It's actually successful. <laughs> uh, they use guerrilla war tactics, and um, they have inferior military technology, but of course they, like American revolutionaries, knew their land, and they hid in swamps and wadis, etc. And beyond that, it's helpful to know that the area of, of Judah was sort of like the bottom of Antiochus's kingdom. It wasn't in the middle, and Antiochus had other concerns going on up north. So it's not like he brought the full military presence down. He was distracted, so they won some autonomy. Another interesting thing that happened was that Judas Maccabeus asked for an ally who did not like the Greeks, um, and that was Rome. <laughs> and so Rome became the Maccabean ally, and then a hundred years later conquered the Maccabean Empire for themselves. Um, now, you know that in any rebellion, people die. It just happens. Even in a religiously motivated rebellion, like the Maccabees were leading. So, so the Maccabees are essentially saying, look, you know, Antiochus is offering us the choice between giving up our identity and death. Those are our choices. So we're going to pick our identity over living the life they impose on us, and even if we die, or death is worth it if that's what happens. 
Most scholars will tell you the whole book of Daniel, even if the stories are older, right, orally older, comes from this time period. And consider that, that theme a little bit about being faithful regardless of the apparent empirical consequences, regardless of what the government does to you, sticking to your identity. Now that's what's in stake in all the narrative uh, bits up front. Now, the rest of the book is not just narrative, it's a gathering of sayings and visions that is really called apocalyptic. So we call this a genre of writing. Um, apocalyptic literature, uh, and, and really there's only, uh, Revelation is the only full-blown apocalypse in the Bible, although Daniel chapters 7 through 12 are also what we call apocalyptic. They, they again, they tend to use, um, talk about the cosmic powers being, being fighting with each other. They use... Um, sometimes apparently strange symbols like little horns and um, uh, lion-bodied, human-head, eagle-winged entities. And um, a lot of folks have thought that um, these are radical future predictions. Uh, that is the way I grew up reading Revelation. It's end times predictions. Um, it's unlikely that with... The <laughs> it's unlikely that people would keep a book sacred that meant nothing to them. I just, I just want to point that out, right? So if Revelation meant nothing to your generation, why you would keep it, I have no idea. Um, so, so that's probably not it. Other folks have said that when you're oppressed, you have to use code language to talk about your oppressors. Because if you say, hey, I hate Julius Caesar and the Romans are in charge, well, then you look bad. So instead of calling him Julius Caesar, you call him a bear, hey, it's okay to hate bears. <laughs> um, seems unlikely. The most likely explanation, actually, and, and this is helpful because apocalyptic doesn't mean to make hidden. It actually means to unveil. So apocalyptic literature is really there to, to tell you what is really happening <coughs> past what's apparent, is that they are trying to describe the qualities of things instead of the details of things. And, and think through that we, we use symbolism like that very well. It's just that we're, we, we've become familiar with certain images. So if I showed you a drawing, particularly a cartoon, that had a donkey and an elephant in it, you would automatically start to think it was some kind of political commentary, right? And if you read the comic strip Doonesbury, and, and, and I didn't read it very long, but I happen to know... Uh, President Bill Clinton was symbolized by a waffle. So anytime there was a waffle talking, you knew it was Bill Clinton. Now, now you could agree or disagree with that particular image, but it was sort of understood the waffle is Bill Clinton. Um, the best explanation of apocalyptic literature I've heard is that it really is a caricature of the inner reality of the forces who are in control. So when you hear about... Um, lion-headed, leopard body. When you hear about this amalgam of wild, vicious animals, that's really trying to describe what the empire is like, animalistic, carnivorous. I think that's helpful. Um, and, and I think that's probably accurate given the context of what we're talking about. And, and remember, what these things ultimately are saying is that... Um, there are these strong, sort of awful forces that appear to be in control, but don't give up your fidelity because of apparent control. 
That's probably the, the, the strongest word we get from apocalyptic literature. Hang on, hang on, essentially. Uh, um, the other thing that apocalyptic literature often does is falsely attributes uh, itself to an author of some note. So uh, one of the books that didn't make it into our Bible is the book of Enoch. And of course, Enoch's a famous guy because he walked with God and was no more. And so there's a legend that Enoch went to heaven and never died. So you would want to read a book by that guy. <laughs> he never died. He went to heaven with God. You know, other popular figures would be like Jesus and Elijah. Like, those are good people. You want to read their books. Um, sometimes in apocalyptic literature, uh, again, this is like pseudepigraphic. Um, Enoch probably did not write the book of First Enoch since it was written like a thousand years after he disappeared from the face of the earth, at least, right? How did he get it here? <laughs> I suppose he used a messenger <laughs> pigeon. Well, um, Daniel is an interesting figure because um, Daniel is a Hebrew name, but it really is based in an Aramaic character called Don Ale. Don Ael is uh, sort of a sage figure and a demigod in Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, and the Hittite Empire. So, so he is like, again, he's just sort of this, he's kind of like Confucius or somebody like that. That was a real person. We don't know about Daniel, but the book is ascribed to this guy who's, who's known and worshipped and sought after a, as being more than a human being. So... So we don't know if there ever was a Daniel. In some ways, that doesn't matter, right? But, but just letting you know that's characteristic of the, of the genre. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, the government, the government didn't handle submission delicately either. <laughs> About like Nebuchadnezzar would have. Uh, yeah, so that's an interesting incident. No, it's fair, and, and, and when we get to what we do with the book in about 15 minutes, that's a great, that's a great, that's a great question. I mean, it really is. Um, but I want to just hang it on the wall just for a second and return to it, because that, that's where I want to get after we go through the other bits. One other thing that apocalyptic literature often does is it retells the past. It pretends to be older than it is. It tells stuff that's already happened and then tells stuff that's going to happen so that the author establishes credibility. Look, the author knew all the stuff that we know has happened 500 years ago, so here's the next thing, and the author's going to be right about that. Does, it, does that make sense? Does not make sense or does? So people sort of figured that out. But part of what the genre does is, is pretends to be older than it is to, is to help establish through an, a figure like Don Ale or Enoch, like, ooh, name recognition, 
And, oh, look, everything the book said that was going to happen has happened. And the next thing that's going to happen is God's going to defeat this power, so we're ready to believe that. Does that sort of make sense? It's like priming their prophecy. Okay, so, so hopefully that's, that's, that's all right. Again, I'm trying to tell you the way most scholars approach the book, which, which the reason I appreciate it is that it significantly demystifies the book and makes it actually, like, germane to life. <laughs> Instead of, well, that could mean whatever you want. I mean, it could, but why would anybody keep that book in their sacred literature collection that's relatively small? I, I mean, I just think people have always been relatively reasonable and practical when it comes to a small collection of sacred books. <laughs> that's my bias. <sighs> Aren't you glad? <laughs> Okay, so now let's have a, a, an exciting tour, if it's okay, of, um, of the narrative part of Daniel, and then a little bit about the, the full-blown apocalyptic language, and then we'll see what we do with that whole book before we move on to the other snippets that we got. Does that seem okay? Um, you know, the, the, the author, I mean, the presenter raised an interesting thought, didn't he, that um, in each chapter... Daniel, or, yeah, well, really Daniel, and sometimes a company defies imperial power. And in the first chapter, it's about what you eat. Now, I will tell you, there's folks that say, listen, the Bible's telling you that vegetarianism is healthier than, than, than being an omnivore, because Daniel and his friends did not eat meat, and they were stronger and sleeker than anybody else. Thank you. Uh, actually, they don't drink any wine either, so... Um, <sighs> Yeah, what, what, what I want to tell you is that obviously this is not a commentary on relative health benefits. This is a choice between participating in um, polytheistic idolatry or not. So some folks would say, well, the king's table is tainted because he doesn't have a kosher oven. That's probably not the criterion we should interpret it with. You, you, I don't know if you know this. Um, I have a brother that's Orthodox Jewish, and he will come to my house, and he will kind of... Actually, I don't actually do that anymore. Um, but I can't serve him any food because it will be unkosher, even if the food's kosher, because my home and my oven aren't. Like, I've had meat and dairy in my sink. Even if not together, they've gone into the same sink. So you know in a kosher home, there's the meat sink and the dairy sink, and you need two. I don't have two sinks. So anything in my sink is defiled. And I've cooked meat and dairy in my oven, which means my oven's defiled. You, you, you see how this goes. Um, so it could be that the king is serving non-kosher meals, like rock badger and fruit bat and camels and alligators and shrimp. It could also be that the king's ovens are not kosher, so they can't eat that. But that's, that's a little silly, friends. The real issue is there's wine and there's meat. Remember that all meat is sacrificed to gods. All of it, not just the Hebrew. Remember, what priests did is they were butchers. They butchered your meat. You did not butcher your own meat. Even if you killed the animal, you brought it to the priest or the Levite to butcher. So... When the king is serving food that has been sacrificed to gods, it has therefore been served at the tables of Marduk 
and Ishtar and other Babylonian deities. That is, you're being invited to eat at the table with gods who are not your god. And the answer is, no, we don't belong at the table with your gods. I mean, really, that's what Daniel's resisting. Not even sure that he's monotheistic. He's just not going to eat at the table of Marduk. He's not going to eat the table of Anana Ishtar. He, they decide not to do it. And wine is another one of those things, what do you know, that is sort of put at the gods' tables. So that's why they don't drink the wine. This is not a commentary that wine is evil and you shouldn't have it. It's a commentary that wine offered to other gods, they've decided is corrupt. It'll be really interesting when we read 1 Corinthians on Sunday, and Paul says those gods aren't real, so go ahead and eat it, unless someone sees you. <laughs> We're still figuring out this, this sort of business, right? But that's really what it is, is that they, they refuse to eat at the table of other gods. And remarkably, surprisingly, they're eating impoverished food. They're, you know, wine was a major source of nutrition, right? Water wasn't really great to be drinking. Uh, they turn out all right. In fact, they turn out healthier than the other people. So again, do not think about this as a, a good way to lose weight and improve your health. That might work for you, but that's not what the story's about. So, so they resist. It's, it's a risk. They could be punished and they put the king of the guards in a really tough situation as well, but they do. In chapter two, the king has a dream and he's shrewd, because he knows, oh, I don't know if he knows the story, but you know way back when Pharaoh had that dream and he really needed an interpretation and nobody could do it? I mean, come on, like my daughter could tell you what that dream <laughs> means. <laughs> yeah, um, <coughs> you didn't need Sigmund Freud or a couch or cocaine or any of that to figure that one out. Now, now this one, <coughs> The king realizes people could tell him whatever they want, and how could he argue with their interpretation? It might just be what he wants to hear. So instead, they have to tell him the dream and the interpretation, and they can't do it, so he's going to kill them all. And then, and then Daniel does this, and uh, he describes you know, this, this statue and um, really says that Nebuchadnezzar represents the, the head and the leadership of gold, and things are going to get worse after you. Um, the king worships Daniel for doing this and gives him a grain offering. I don't know if you, if you noticed that. Um, that's interesting. Even though Daniel says, I didn't do it, God did. Well, <coughs> the interpretation of those empires is really something interesting. See, I grew up in a church that read Daniel as predicting the future. So the way we did it is we said, well, the gold, that's the Babylonians, and the silver would be the Persians, and the bronze would be the Greeks, and Rome, that's like the Iron Legion, so the Iron People, and then there's going to be this new empire of the Antichrist that's like old Rome mixed with clay, and that's going to cover... <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. The thing that we failed to remember is that the whole thing gets broken down, and really that's the whole point of the story. No matter how good it is, it gets worse, and it gets broken. Now... If you listen to the history that I just told you, the way most scholars handle this is they say the gold is clearly Babylon. The silver is actually the Medes, which was an empire. Cyrus unified them with the Persians there, the bronze people, the iron people, Alexander, that's the phalanx. And then when Alexander dies, there's a new empire, not quite as strong as Alexander. That's like iron mixed with clay. 
it doesn't even matter who the empires are. The point is, God is going to overthrow them. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar thinks that's a great interpretation and decides to build a gold statue that everybody should worship. Now, that is a really strange reaction to the dream. I mean, it's so strange that you've got to wonder if something like that happened, <laughs> right? I mean, symbolically, you understand what's happening is that now people have to worship the empire Nebuchadnezzar like he's God. And they won't do it. Don't you see? They won't worship somebody who says they're God. Thinly veiled allegory. <laughs> so <coughs> what happens? They heat up the oven and they say, we're going to throw you in the furnace if you don't. And their reply is really something interesting. We know God can deliver us from the oven. But even if God doesn't, we won't worship you. Now think through that. People die in revolutions, even for good causes. And, and that line's really telling. We know God will deliver us, but even if God doesn't, even if God doesn't, we will still stand on our principles. That's really, that's the message. I can't tell you about there being a fourth person in the fire that looks like a son of the gods. Now, of course, the church I grew up, that was Jesus, but, um, and I guess it could have been, but probably not in the author's mind, right? Because I just, just want to be clear. <laughs> um, and that's it. And, of course, when they're done, you know, um, when they're done, Nebuchadnezzar makes the rule that you can't blaspheme the God of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. You can't blaspheme their God. But he doesn't become a Jewish person or a monotheist. Just <laughs> want to make sure you know, right? I mean, you can't blaspheme that God. You don't have to worship that God either. You can still stick with us with what we got. And that's the end of the fiery furnace story. It's a cute story. Learned it on the flannel board in Sunday school. Like, it's good. Kids like it because it's, like, got a miracle in it, you know? I mean, it's a good kid story. These are clear heroes, and, and they're heroes just because they say no. I mean, that's, and that's a good story, right? You can tell kids that there's a lot of heroism in saying no to drugs and saying no to peer pressure. I mean, this is, a, this is like a good pedagogical story, right? Except that lots of other people did get burned up in the furnace. We leave that out. <laughs> But these people were spared, you know? Um, <coughs> any thought? Did I miss anything on that one that you, you guys loved? I, I think it's interesting that uh, the act of defying or carrying on with the World War II and Paul's story. Because the uh, Jews in concentration camps, especially the work camps, slow down their productivity yeah, I mean, this is definitely part of the, just the human condition, right? I don't think it's even unique to Jewish folks. Like, this, this, this happens all over the place, right? I, and it's, it's really, I don't even know that it's aggression. It's, it's, it's sort of, and it's not passive. It's, it's nonviolent resistance. I mean, quite honestly, this is the kind of resistance that happened on the Birmingham march. And, and folks sort of said, you may spray us with hoses and God might deliver us from them, but even if God doesn't, we're going to get sprayed down with the hoses, but then we're going to get back up again and walk again. And notice that's nonviolent resistance. That's interesting. Really the, 
well, where do you think he got the idea? Gandhi, actually. Um, Gandhi got it from this and Jesus. This and Jesus. Now, that's an interesting point to raise because this is being written arguably at the time of this armed rebellion by the Maccabees who are armed fighting. And this book is about nonviolent resistance. I think that's an interesting thing to hold together. Uh, that continues, you know, in, um, in page four. Well, Gandhi in South Africa, that's right. We, um, yeah. Uh, so, so in chapter four, there's that vision of the tree, and he goes out, and he's like a wild animal and stuff. And again, I told you there's, that actually has some historical analog where he went and lived in the desert like a crazy guy. Other people have done that. You know, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor during the Reformation, um, he, he, he advocated the emperorship and, and went and became a monk, <laughs> you know. Uh, that's probably what you do when you lose the Holy Roman Empire. You just go join a monastery. Um, <coughs> but he did, and that's what uh, Nebuchadnezzar did. He quit while he was ahead. Um, then comes that party, like I told you, that, that his son throws uh, on this fateful night of Cyrus, and, and God proves, this is an interesting thing, God proves that God is both literate and able to write. Because the hand of God writes the words, meeny, meeny, pickle, parson. We still use this idiomatic phrase, the writing's on the wall. Um, the reason it's important to point out that God is both literate and able to write is that if um, biblical inerrancy were so important, God would have just written it all. But God didn't do that. I hope that's okay to say. <laughs> Human beings wrote this stuff, right? God wrote these words. So that's four words. And then ten words on the, on, the, uh, on, on the tablets that Moshe brought down. So God wrote, four, God's good for 14 words, <laughs> right? Those ones are really important. Uh, did you notice, this is so crazy, right, that, that, that the king uh, is really concerned about these words, and Daniel says, oh, yeah, it just means you've been measured and found wanting, and your kingdom will be taken from you tonight. And the response is, well, give this guy a crown and some purple clothes. <laughs> like he, he gets a great reward <laughs> for predicting the imminent demise of the king, <coughs> which I guess happens. And again, that's, that's linked to a historical event. Now, we didn't have those words on the wall, by the way, but I will tell you this. If you are ever in the city of Berlin, there is arguably like I hate to say most unique. There is a rather intriguing museum in Berlin called the Pergamum Museum. Has anybody been to that before? This is, if you're in Berlin, you must go to this. It uh, is the best museum in the world because it has the Ishtar Gate from Babylon. The Germans stole it and put it in a museum along with a huge altar that they took from the city of Pergamum and they put it inside. And it, it's just it's sort of darn amazing. Uh, that was a side comment, but you can see the gate of Babylon. It's in Berlin, not Babylon. <laughs> it does, yeah. Yeah. Uh, then we get that rule, you know, now the king's changed, and, and it's a Persian ruler, and Daniel prays toward Jerusalem three times a day, and people don't like that, so they pick on him because of his religious identity, Right? This is, this is classic anti-Semitism. I mean, it is, right? And, and Daniel uh, continues to pray. Instead of worshiping the king for 30 days only, which is the law, he, he continues to pray faithfully to Jerusalem, and they throw him in the lion's den. You, you know, this is another great children's story. You have that picture on a flannel board. You probably don't have the flannel board picture of the lion's um, 
crunching the other people's bones to dust. That did not make it onto the board I had. <laughs> I think there were some people like, whoopee, like jumping into the lions, but it didn't show like the gore that ensues in, in, in the actual story. Yeah, that comes in the, in, in, in the youth group flannel board, right? Um, and, and again, you know, this story get, works out really well is that, that God is on the side of the people who are faithful. That's a really great message. Daniel sort of knows that that may not happen and is faithful anyway. And again, these are written to people who are like really struggling to hold on. Notice that at the end of that, the king, who's called Darius, doesn't convert to Judaism either. He just says, I'm glad your God saved you, <laughs> but I'm not going to worship that God. I mean, I just want to point out, when you're polytheistic, there's plenty of other gods that can do stuff, and you don't owe them anything. You just owe your God's stuff, okay? And that gets us through the narrative portion of Daniel. Then we get into the weird stuff about the Messiah and the end times. I hate that. I hate that title, but, but, you know, some of the symbolism is just relatively helpful. You know, I told you already there's a phrase like the abomination that causes desolation. There's pretty no doubt in scholars' minds that that is Antiochus sacrificing that pig in the Holy of Holies. That's really the most abominable thing imaginable in the holiest place on earth to do. Um, you get symbols like there's four winds, and clearly that represents the compass point, right? The winds cover the earth. And there's these four beasts, and those describe empires. There's things like, uh, you know, a lion with wings and a human mind. Well, that's a Persian symbol. I mean, I, you can go to Persepolis and see a lion with uh, human wings and a human head. That's, that's the Zoroastrian symbol for the Persian monarchy. Um, it's not that bizarre when you go to Persepolis and see that was their own symbol. <laughs> so you could say, wow, like, is that a hybrid mutant that's going to happen from genetic engineering and the world's going to get out of, you know, totally get out of, get, go into this apocalyptic um, zombie thing involving Brad Pitt? You could do that. Or you could say, oh, like, that's the Persian symbol for themselves. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, there's a horn, what do you know, with iron teeth. Like I told you, like spears coming over shields, they look like iron teeth. I mean, that, that, that vehicle of war is, looks like a monster. And it, sure enough, it, it, it ate the known world up. Um, so that's probably, you know, a fair thing to make of that. And then um, really all those portions of Daniel that seems so confusion are doing is, 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 is telling you that the the empires that we're fighting against or that we're afraid of are really just monstrous. And, that, and that's probably true. Um, you read things about the Book of Life. There's like the Book of Life is mentioned there. Remember, these folks don't really believe in heaven and hell. That's, that's still kind of a, a new idea back then. So, so the, you know, clearly the people who have life, I mean, this is probably the kind of thing that we tell our kids, you know, you've probably told your kids something like, integrity is the thing nobody else can take from you, you have to give it away, right? So, integrity is like the book of life. <laughs> Don't give it away. Keep on to your religious integrity and you'll have this larger life. That might have been disappointing, but that's my coverage of Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I think the question is, 
what do we do with the book of Daniel? The message is good about nonviolent resistance, you know, and uh, about how do we resist things that we consider to be tyrannical. And, you know, I think it's really easy to say that's what Martin Luther King and Gandhi did and good for them. Of course, you know, just to kind of bring it to our modern day, and, and I'm thinking, well, actually not just outside, but inside the Episcopal Church, I mean, thinking through social issues of our day that make people all fluttery, you know, like women priests. This is an easy one to pick on because most of us have kind of come around on that one. Um, took a long time for people to come around on that one or to be comfortable enough with it, right? And at the time, it was sort of like, well, what do you do with people who are saying no to women priests? And, and you know, that happened a long time after women were priesthood. People would come to the communion rail and refuse communion from the mother and the priestess, right? Uh, well into the 90s. Uh, maybe people still do that. I don't know the answer. But that was their nonviolent resistance against tyranny of the church. And on the other side, <laughs> this is an interesting thing, right, is that people on either side of a social issue or a theological issue can read the same book encouraging them to resist. And it's worth noting, right, that you could be militantly anti-gay marriage and you could say, Daniel's written for me and I'm going to resist. I mean, the easy way to resist that is don't marry somebody of your same gender, right? <laughs> um, however, you could be militantly in favor of same-gender same marriage and read Daniel. And then I think the question is, what's really what's our, what's our gui guiding principle? It's true that people can use the Bible to mean whatever they want it to mean, but I think the question is, what's the higher call for Daniel regardless of your position on a social issue or a theological issue? And I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I want to I point out that Daniel doesn't go marching either. You know what I mean? Daniel doesn't pick it or have clever signs. He just says no to stuff. I, I, <laughs> get, I get caught up with it. It's something I never thought about. I felt the Lord didn't have to give me a lot of time to do it. <laughs> Those four guys got to say some stuff. Well, just one, actually. Daniel was the only one that came out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't in the den. It might be. That, no, that is all for Jesus. Yeah. But, but I'm going to go in there, and 
guess my reward is when the final day does come, I get to coach him face to face and ask him, you know, why'd I do that? Why did he? Yeah, it's a great question about, about the reward because remember that at this time, and this, this is actually in sync with people starting to think about what happens to people who are killed for their faith, and this is where the idea of resurrection comes from. But it's not ubiquitous, and there's not an idea of heaven and hell yet. There really isn't. Even at 167 BCE, there's not. So, so you have an extra advantage because you have the idea that you get to talk to God after you die. Yeah. They didn't have that idea. Right, they just went in and said, so this life is all, might be all we get, might be all we get, and we're willing to give that up to live in covenant with God. Yes and no. I mean, quite honestly, right, I think, I think the analog is I don't know a parent that would not give their life for their child. The question is, you know, where is the relationship strong like that? I'm sure there are parents who yeah. There probably are some. I'll retract, I'll retract my statement, but, but I'll also maybe affirm I don't know any parents that I don't think would, would go to this length for their kids. Maybe when they're young, before it gets blessed with hope. I got, I got good parents. I got good parents. My mom would go to the furnace for me, even if it was something she, uh, she couldn't support. I got, I got, I got good parents. Yeah. So, so I know folks that are that are like that. You know, so for other flaws. No, I just, I just, no, I don't think that's, I don't think that's it. Sorry. So not good or bad. I mean, I have parents that would that would do the furnace bit for me. You know, I, I don't want to put a label on it, but they would. And I, and I think probably what that's about, right, is people deciding what's of ultimate value. That. Um, it's not that they can't live without their kids. It's that, uh, you know, they'd rather die than know about their kids dying. It's, I think it's something more about these, these acts of ultimate value. I'm glad we're not pessimists. I mean, there are people who are pessimists. There are. Yeah, no, there are. And actually, I think just sticking with what you said, there's some parents that are tested like that with their kids. And... and where their ultimate value has to go, particularly if, if their kids are sort of taking their lives one way or another. I mean, that just hard, that's hard stuff. And what, and what do you do with it? Because there's no assurance that you get a reward. I mean, I do think that's important. That's part of what the book of Daniel is, I think, saying is some people say, well, I'll give my life for Jesus and I'll get a jewel in my heavenly crown. This book isn't telling you that. <laughs> I mean, you might believe that, but this book isn't telling you that. And then what it means, what it means to go and resist is another thing. See, I was taught the book of Daniel as a, as a youth. And you know, this is back in the days of the Soviet empire, you know, the atheistic, communistic, USSR, the bear. What do you know? That's one of the symbols in Daniel. We were so sure. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being silly, right? But, but we were sort of, we heard these stories, fed them in youth group, that there were people who would smuggle Bibles into Russia so that there would be this chance that people, you know, could know about God and go to heaven and, and they could pay with their life and read Daniel and you all be ready to do that. Give your lives for like smuggling Bibles into Russia. I mean, that was the thing as a kid, you know, 
then it came out like there's people who go and, and witness and evangelize in Saudi Arabia and they jeopardize their lives. And I, friends, I just don't think that's what Daniel's about. Because <laughs> notice the book is not about Daniel going to another country. It's about people coming into his country. Right? The context is completely, completely different. Um, and, and I don't know the answer. Again, people on any side can use the book of Daniel to say how they should resist. But I, but I hope it's helpful to think about how the resistance works, you know. And, and again, it's not passive. They do say no. It's not violent. It's not violent. But they do say no. Um, and, and, and I don't know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to draw out my thoughts here, but I, but I do think there's probably something really violent about a group breaking itself up because of a difference of opinion. I wonder about that. I wonder if that isn't violence to the community to say, well, you think women should be priests, and, and I don't think so, so we're going to split Yeah, it's a tough thing. I mean, I, I, and, I, and I wonder about your experience growing up as kids. Um, even when I was a teenager into my early 20s, still now in some ways, I don't have a lot of conversations with my parents about differences of opinion. We have um, exchanged monologues. <laughs> uh, conversation implies that we listen to each other. Um, monologues, that's not necessary. And, and I do wonder if that isn't part of the deal. I mean, we in general, culturally, and, I, and I'd say this is my read of Congress over the last 15 years, they refuse to listen to one another categorically. And I think that's sinful and wrong for both parties to do, to categorically refuse to listen to somebody else because they're not like you. And, and I wonder, I wonder, you know, again, I'm stretching this probably, but I wonder if Daniel isn't saying that kind of resistance is violent because it fractures a community in half. And, and, I, and, and I wonder if, you know, and obviously this, all of this has limits, and I don't, really know, I don't really know where they are, but I wonder if sort of the hope for the Episcopal Church is not that we even just agree to disagree, but we sort of say that regardless of our opinions on, on certain issues, we have more in common than we have apart, and that we've decided we're going to worship together knowing that we intentionally will disagree with each other. And I think it's actually a really healthy sign to see um, 
Trump for president or Trump for God, Trump for God stickers in the parking lot next to Hillary Clinton or, or the anti-Trump or whatever, whatever it is. I actually think it's really healthy that people with divergent stickers come and worship God together in the same room uh, and, and that they either know or don't know each other's politics, but what's important is the, the, the community. I mean, I, I think there's something nonviolent about that. What? Yeah, or I think it's even, I think it's choose unity and mission over uniformity in belief. Of course, that can be really hard, right? Because at a certain point, you can hear this book saying you gotta, you gotta resist watering down your faith. So, so I don't really know, I don't really know what to say about that. I mean, I do think it's helpful to kind of reflect on. I think women in ministry, we've, 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 we've figured out, sort of. I think we've, we've mostly figured that out, right? There's still not female pay equity. But I do think we're still struggling to figure out, like, gender equality and same-sex marriage equality. I think, think we're, we're trying to do that. You know, the big unpleasantness happened in 2000. Really not in 03. It happened in 09. 03 was when Gene Robinson was, was priested, elected by his people who knew it, and the church said, <gasps> And, and then they, they studied it for a long time, and in 2009 they said, well, that'll be okay. And in San Diego, three of our parishes that had an ASA of like 350 all of a sudden had an ASA of 50 because they took their toys and they left, you know. And, and you can read this book to say that's what you should do, you know. Uh, but, I, but I do feel like that probably was a really big loss for those folks, quite honestly, uh, and for the 50 behind. They, they sort of lost their... They sort of lost their faith community, and and I and I wonder if that is actually violent resistance. Coming back to the theme, I mean, I don't I don't know the answer to this. You know, um, twenty fifteen, the National uh, Assembly said that, that that gay marriage is a sacrament, but you know, a lot of our parishes are still don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> but I don't know how this one's going to work out. You know, I'm sure there'll be more unpleasantness, but I, but I, but I wonder. If one way to read this book is about nonviolent resistance is the ability to listen and disagree with people on purpose. <laughs> stay together. And stay together on purpose. I mean, I wonder about that. I just, I just wonder. Maybe I'm, I'm really, really way off topic, but I'm just trying to think how this book can, inf- can inform the way we deal with perceived oppression and perceived rights violations and, and, and perceived poor theology. I don't know if that makes sense. Yes, ma'am. Well, I think, I think this is a really great question, and this is something we're struggling with, not even just religiously, but nationally, right? There's a difference between doing transgender therapy and giving medical necessity care to a transgendered person.
to refuse. Yeah. And what if you're against and what if you're against birth control and you deny your employees access to it? I mean these are the, these, these are real these are real things, right? And and I'm not ridiculing those people. What I mean is I didn't think I didn't think we have people in the United States forcing us to eat at the table of other gods, but but I do think these issues represent that for us. So, so I think maybe the details have changed, but the times maybe haven't, and, and how we're called to be in conversation and resist those. I mean, I think that's an interesting question. I really, I really do. And I, I, maybe it sounds like I'm reaching, and maybe I am, but I think this, this book is trying to offer us um, to discern carefully and nonviolently and ultimately to hold on to our integrity. Maybe I better mention the other things because we've got 10 more minutes and we read them. <laughs> um, the other things were just apocalyptic images that come here and there. So they're not from completely apocalyptic books. Um, you know, in Isaiah uh, 24, God is going to punish the host of heaven. Those are like other gods. But since God's going to punish them, that means they're real. <laughs> Don't just that make sense what I'm saying? Remember, this, these are polytheistic books. I just want to sort of point these sort of things out. Um, God is going to slay the Leviathan, which is like that big sea monster. But remember earlier, we read that God made the Leviathan for fun. And now God's going to kill it. So, so uh, these are image things. These are, like, these are like the forces of chaos and terror and, and God is going to slay those. Is there really a Leviathan? Maybe in Loch Ness, but I, you know what I mean? Like I, 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 this is really about underlying realities. And, and frankly, I think if you've been places in the world, there's places you can go that like have a feeling to them, at least for me. Um, some places are comforting and sweet. Like those are thin places. They're like powerful and majestic. Like Petra's like that. It's just really awe-inspiring and beautiful. And then there's places like Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, and there's really nothing sweet about that place. Uh, maybe it's because I know what happened there, but, but I don't think so. I think it's because there's a spirit in the place. And I'm not like a spiritual wackadoo guy, but the hairs on my neck stood up when I went there. Um, and, and, and those places are real for me. Like I experienced that in different places. So I think that's what apocalyptic imagery is about. That sort of supernatural experience you get sometimes in, in communities or in places, and those are the forces that I think apocalyptic imagery is talking about. 
Um, we get those other images. Listen, it's an apocalyptic image for a wolf to lie down with a lamb, right, and, and for a leopard to lie down with a goat, because that'll never happen, right? A, a predator can't lay down with prey. This, this is not going to happen. <laughs> but it's apocalyptic because it's saying that will be the end reality. In some ways, what the apocalypse does is it says the reality is going to end like this. And, and to be honest, most of my life is lived anxious about how things are going to end up. The biggest worry I have as a parent is whether my parenting is going to work. Are my kids going to grow up to be fulfilled? Are they going to grow up to be contributing, hardworking? You, you, you know, if you knew it would work, what it, you would do anything indefinitely if you just knew it would work. <coughs> but we don't know. <laughs> And that's the hard part, is living in the I don't know. In some ways, the apocalyptic book is saying, we do know how it's going to work out. God's going to work it out well. So what if we lived knowing the conclusion already? And I think what that's what the apocalyptic literature is inviting us to do. No matter how bad it seems, God is going to work it out. Maybe not till, this is where we believe in things like resurrection, because God might not be able to work it out till we die. <laughs> But God will work it out. I mean, again, that's, I, I think that's what the literature is trying to do, is to get us to think about the true nature of things, not the apparent chaos of things. Maybe I'm just telling myself that because I need to hear it. Um, <clears throat> in Zechariah, there's this really interesting thing that the, the God's anointed will come in riding on a donkey, and then there's parallelism, right, the repetition, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right. Um, remember that a donkey is a really inefficient fighting machine. It doesn't wear a saddle very well because they hadn't invented those. And it's really low to the ground. You're actually much better fighting on foot than you are on the back of the donkey. A donkey is a symbol of peace, therefore. When you ride into a city on top of a donkey, it's because you've already conquered it. <laughs> the Messiah will ride in on a donkey because the battle will have already been decisively won. Now in Matthew, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey, because the battle has already been won. Uh, it's a symbol of peace, because you can't fight from one. Also in Matthew, uh, Matthew quotes the scripture from Zechariah, and he does a funny thing, because in Matthew, Jesus rides on a colt, on a donkey, and on a colt. How he did that at the same time, one wonders. It is possible that like the skiers at Wikiwachi Springs, he put one foot on the spine of each animal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unlikely. Seems like Matthew just messed the quote up. There's some really lovely things in Isaiah, right? The people in darkness have seen the light. Unto us a child is born and his name will be Emmanuel. These are apocalyptic images. They tell you about the true nature of things. Um, there's a root of Jesse, because even though the kingdom was overthrown and Ze Zedekiah saw his three heirs killed before his eyes, it looked like the tree was chopped down, but the root remains. God is rooted in the people. Uh, and we get to Malachi, and this is, remember, the last book in, as we have done it. The Hebrew Bible is different. Like, if you read the Jewish Bible, Malachi is not at the end. Esther is. But, but in our Bible, Malachi comes last. And sure enough, it talks about sending a messenger ahead, a voice crying in the wilderness, who will be like a fuller's soap and a refiner's, refiner's fire. Remember, soap doesn't punish things, it cleans it. And a refiner's finer doesn't torture metal, it cleans it. 
and, and that's what's going to happen is fire in the Bible is meant not to punish people. So fires of hell is like a Dante idea, not a biblical idea. Fire is meant to refine and burn up dross and impurity. And of course, this is John the Baptist, the messenger who prepares, the Elijah who comes to bring repentance. Uh, that's who we're supposed to expect. And that ends the Jewish Bible as we've organized it, that ends the Old Testament, and then John the Baptist is the beginning of the Christian Bible, so they're like bookends. And that's how we've organized the Bible to put those sort of things together. Is John the Baptist really Elijah? No, it's an apocalyptic image. It's about who he represents. <laughs> he's not literally Elijah. He's, he really is just John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was my treatment of hope. Can we go back to the day of <coughs> Almost. Let me, let's do this one first. Oh, Catholics get it out of compassion. They didn't get it out of the Bible. Catholics get the idea of purgatory out of compassion and, and out of a sense of justice because, you know, um, we, we all know that saying I'm sorry is the first step and then atoning for what you did, making it right, is the next. So if God is just, then surely we have to make stuff right. And if we can't make it right when we're alive, there's purgatory when we die. And purgatory is actually pretty positive because it's temporary. <laughs> the last but a million years in infinity is, is nothing. It's not even the point, right? And so in my little Baptist world, purgatory wasn't a thing, which meant you went to hell forever, which is not even just because the stuff you did is not forever. No matter how bad you are as a human being, the bad stuff you do does not last forever. It can't, because you didn't last forever. So to punish you forever is disproportionate, cruel, and unusual punishment. I, I, I mean, I think savvy human beings figured that out, and that's why there's purgatory. It's just, you do your time, and, and then God will deal with you, like, fairly. Of course you won't. You won't. But you also won't find anything in the Bible that, that says um, there's, there's a devil and there's eternal uh, punishment that's often ironic and sadistic in hell and that the devil is the king of hell. You won't find any of that stuff in the Bible. Nor will you find that hell is a place where God isn't. I mean, that's Christian mythology. We bought into it so much that it's our now it's our story, but it's not biblical, and it doesn't even make sense. It's just that we were told that it did, so we believe it. Even if we don't believe it, like we trust that that stuff's true. Yeah, lots of things we're told are in the Bible that just aren't. And frankly, there's lots of things in the Bible that are disgusting. Just because they're there doesn't mean they should be. You, you know? I mean, I just think that's really important. Oh, that's in the Bible. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so is chopping a woman into 12 pieces while she's alive and sending the pieces out to people. I mean, that just, that's in the Bible. Doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> but I think purgatory is a good idea. <laughs> it's a step in the right direction, you know? I mean, it just, it really is. It really, it really is. And I think that's where it came from. It came from people who like thought maybe God's really not as petty 
as we've decided God is. Back to David Koresh. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question, and, and a lot of it really has to do with whether or not that happens after we die or while we die, and what the point of that, that is, you know, is the goal of the fire to prove whether our stuff is good or not, or if it's to refine our stuff, which is good and bad. I mean, a good definition of saint that I got is that a saint is somebody who's aware of the selfishness behind their every motive. And I think that's probably pretty good. <laughs> so, so are all of those works going to get burned up because they had to do with the saint as well? I don't think so. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with being self-interested. There is something wrong with being selfish. <laughs> so, so I think the idea, right, hopefully, is that um, God's got us covered. <laughs> And, and I, I yeah, but I do, and I've thought about that a bunch because I was really worried about motives for a long time. But you know, even if you do some good work for the wrong reason, you gave somebody else life. I mean, that's a really good thing. To heck with your motives. You do good stuff. You did good stuff. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and surely it's got to work like that, you know? I mean, if we waited till we had the right motives to do stuff, we'd never do anything. I mean, I think that's part of the point because your motives would never be pure enough. You'd be thinking, I'm skipping my reward now and I'm going to get it later. But, but I think part of that other business about crowns and stuff that we get in Revelation is you can have the biggest crown you want but as soon as you get it, you throw it away. Nobody wears crowns in heaven. Nobody does. And, and by the way, that's all hum anthropomorphic language anyway, because do we have bodies in heaven? I don't know. Like we talked about on Sunday, which one do we get? Um, <laughs> I might change the one I've got, you know. I'd really take the arthritis away. Um, <coughs> So I think this is an interesting thing, right, is the Bible uses the crown image. You get a crown, but you immediately lose it. And does anybody even get to see it before you take it off? And does anybody care since nobody has one? I mean, I think that's really a good question. So, so in heaven, there's no second-class citizens because you're just there. <laughs> and, and the religious life that was cultivated in me is that there are second-class citizens in heaven. The first-class citizens are the one with bigger crowns and the most jewels. But that's nuts. I mean, the Bible doesn't even support that view because no one gets to see the dang crown. Because you didn't earn it anyway. It was given to you. Right? I mean, that's the whole thing is we, we didn't earn any of this stuff. That's why we call it grace. So maybe what God is going to refine out of us is that competitive edge to earn stuff that God would really just like to give us anyway and to treat people accordingly. I don't know.
but I'm really good at doing that. I think it's my spiritual gift, actually. <laughs> I call it the spiritual gift of criticism. <laughs> some people are prophets and some people speak in tongues. I am critical. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you're laughing. Okay, so, so, yeah. so I, look, we've blown past David Goresh. I, 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 good, you're, you're fair enough distance. I don't have time for David Goresh. I don't, we, don't, we don't have time tonight because I've already gone over. Next week, we're going to talk about context, which means we're going to read Esther and we're going to read Jonah. Those are short little books. And then we're going to do a little bit of review. So bring your, your questions for review because next week we finish the Hebrew Bible. And then the week after that, we'll start with the Gospels. See you next week. Thanks.